WPFW, building a better world, one broadcast at a time. Thank you. Welcome to The Collision. The Collision, where sports and politics smash. Thursdays at 10 a.m. and on iTunes and Google Play. WPFW, Washington, D.C. At 89.3 in HD, WPFW Washington. This is the hour of We the People. I'm your host, David Whetstone, here at your Jazz and Justice radio station, listener-sponsored and supported, and I thank you, WPFW, a Pacifica Foundation radio station that brings you Jazz and Justice for more than 46 years, going into its 47th year due to the support of you, the listener. On We the People, which is a news magazine talking about the intersections of race, politics, history, and culture, we will cover 2024, the year of global elections. About 64 countries, plus the European Union, will hold elections affecting about half of the world's population. Obviously, the consequences will be far-reaching. To bring about a better understanding of what's coming ahead, we have Dr. Clarence Lussane. He's the professor of political science and the director of international affairs program at Howard University. For more than 40 years and in more than 75 countries, he has written about, studied, and has been active in, in national and international human rights, anti-racism politics, diaspora engagements, U.S. foreign policy, democracy building, and other social justice issues such as education, criminal justice, and voting rights. Dr. Lussain is an international expert and observer with the European Commission Against Racism and Intolerance. He practices that position as an independent uh, consultant, or I should say an independent participant, rather. Among his many books are the Black History of the White House, and his latest, $20 and Change, Harriet Tubman versus Andrew Jackson, and the Future of American Democracy. Dr. Lussain, good friend, welcome, welcome. And Thank you, David. Uh, even before you say anything, I'm going to uh, go a little bit farther with your bio because there's some positions and responsibilities and duties that you hold and do that are quite germane to our topic. As I said earlier, you're an independent expert with the European Commission Against Racism and Intolerance 
at the Council of Europe. The, uh, you're also a council member of something called EuroCLIO, and that is the European Association of History Educators. I hope people pick up on the responsibility of knowing history in that title. You're a country expert with the Varieties of Democracy Project, and I'm sure you'll reference that or uh, make that obvious in our conversation. And lastly, but not least, you're a member of the advisory group of experts in the uh, United Nations Joint Inspection Unit. Um, why don't we st start there? I'm curious about this last position. I, I forgot that you maintain that. Uh, so the uh, um, Joint Inspection Unit of the United Nations is an internal body. And so first of all, welcome uh, to all the listeners. Uh, and again, thank you for having me. Uh, but the, the UN Joint Inspection Unit uh, focuses on the internal workings of the United Nations. And one of the uh, initiatives that it took about a year or so ago uh, that I participated in was to do an analysis of the way in which uh, racial discrimination and racial docu um, issues uh, affect the United Nations internally, meaning looking at the bodies within the United Nations from World Health Organizations to UNESCO and, and others, and to do a forensic on how they were addressing issues internally uh, around uh, race and equality and div diversity and all of that. Uh, so that's that's important because, of course, what happens internally at the United Nations affects what it does externally. And uh, so, so certainly reflective of what's going on in the world, of course. Um, we don't have this hour will fly by, so we don't have much time. But um, I would imagine democracy is important to everyone, but... Um, I'm more concerned with your sharing your particular framing of democracy, why the elections in general are uh, uh, that are going to occur this year are very important. Yeah, so as you led, uh, close to half of the population of the world uh, will be, be voting. Uh, now, people are always voting, uh, of course, in local elections, but we're talking national elections, regional elections. Uh, that will create a very different kind of uh, political realignment uh, come 2025. And uh, as you mentioned, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of countries uh, that are having uh, national elections, meaning either president or prime minister or for their national assemblies uh, or congresses, uh, as we refer to it here. So I like to think of these elections not only as individual uh, states that are having elections, but block. And there are a number that stand out. So one is the BRIC countries. Uh, this is the coalition of countries uh, uh, of the, de of the uh, developing world, uh, non-Western world, who form a financial and somewhat political alternative to, to the West. Uh, and BRICS is an acronym for Brazil, Russia, India, uh, China, and South Africa. Uh, three of those countries are having elections. Uh, Russia is having national elections. Uh, India is having national elections and South Africa. So what happens as a consequence of those elections will affect that alliance. Uh, now, Russia pretty much is concluded by most that uh, Putin will uh, remain in power. Uh, they're slated to have re elections uh, in March. What's important about the Russian elections, though, will be what the turnout will be and to what degree there was seen, there will be any uh, seen uh, in Putin's uh, authority. Uh, in India, uh, President Modi uh, is pretty much slated to, to remain in power. Uh, his, his party has been winning for the last number of elections. His approval rating, uh, particularly among his own party, is like 77% or 78% or something like that. Uh, South Africa is going to be more contested. Uh, Ramaphosa, who's uh, currently the president, uh, will be challenged. Uh, and things are still kind of unfolding. Uh, that election will probably take place somewhere between uh, May and August. 
Uh, it's important to point out that in a number of different countries, election dates are not necessarily set uh, well in advance and parties can call elections uh, or governments can call elections uh, at pretty much any time. Uh, so in South Africa, somewhere between May and August, uh, there's going to be an election and it will be uh, the ANC versus uh, there's a coalition called the Democratic Alliance. So that will have a major impact on the stability of Britain and where uh, that particular coalition goes, goes forward. Uh, there are also uh, a number of countries that are part of the UN Security Council uh, that are having elections. Uh, we already mentioned Russia. Uh, the UK will have elections this year. Uh, again, they're not established yet, but probably yeah. somewhere around October and November. Uh, if and if that early, there's, there's some talk also that the present prime minister has to December, beginning of January. Right. So it, it uh, could be, as you said, or it could be a little even, even later. Yeah, it could move, move back a little, but there's some pressure to sort of kind of move it. Uh, and uh, it's a very good chance that the um, Labor Party uh, will win. Uh, the Conservative Party has basically been in power for quite a while, uh, but it's been calamitous. They've had three prime ministers uh, in a very short period of time. Boris Johnson was kind of a disaster. Then, you know, that was followed up by another disaster. Uh, and they've also suffered the consequences of Brexit, uh, which created major financial instability uh, within the UK. So there's a good chance that uh, the Labour Party could come to power. Uh, and of course, then that would have major dynamics in terms of uh, its uh, international alliance. Uh, also on the Security Council, uh, France uh, is not having uh, national elections. They're not up toward electing a president, but they're having midterm elections. And within France, the uh, far right, uh, which has um, I want to say normalized, but uh, uh, coming out of the uh, older period where you had the National Front, which was uh, virulently and overtly uh, racist uh, and fascist, uh, has put on a suit and a tie uh, and a fancy uh, gown uh, and it's changed its name. Now it's called the National Rally Party, uh, headed up by uh, uh, Le Pen, uh, Jean-Luc Le Pen's daughter, Marine Le Pen, uh, and they're looking very uh, healthy in terms of probably uh, being really successful in these uh, midterm, what we, we would call midterm uh, elections coming up. So that's going to have an impact. I won't uh, move uh, Marine out of power, uh, current president, but uh, it will be important. Um, and before we quote unquote, leave Europe. Um, why is the European Union election what involves 27 countries, if I'm not mistaken? Why Why right. would, might that be important to the listeners? So uh, there are a couple of major uh, regional alliances uh, in Europe. Uh, there's the Council of Europe. There's uh, OSCE, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Uh, there's NATO, uh, but the probably most impactful uh, is the European Union. Uh, it's made up of 27 countries uh, from across the region uh, who have major impact on uh, everything from ability of people to travel and work in different countries to, you know, trade. Uh, and so part of the structure of the European Union is that there is a parliament uh, and every country, every member country, all 27, uh, are able to elect people to uh, participate in that parliament. And the parliament uh, has blocks. There's a socialist block, there's a progressive block, uh, but there's also a far right block. They're, and they're very explicit that they're the far right. And so there's expectations that that block will actually grow uh, looking at some of the pre-election polls. Uh, so it could very much uh, go up to uh, somewhere between 90 and 100 seats out of about 700 seats in the parliament uh, overall. 
uh, which would be significant because when they organize blocks within the, the EU Parliament, they really do have an impact on what the EU does. And just to give listeners an example of what they do and how it affects us, obviously issues of trade are um, decided by that body. Um, but importantly, for instance, if one uses the Internet, a lot of the Internet protections that we benefit from here in the United States have been, how can I say it, tough enforcement on the part of the European Union being a little bit more attentive and focused than our legislative bodies on matters of privacy and the Internet. That would be one example out of many. Obviously, we've been talking about all sorts of points on the planet. Uh, global warming is before us. Let me do this. Um, I'm mindful. Well, can, can I finish uh, up on, on the sure. EU for a minute? Go, sure, go ahead. So, uh, yeah, most people know the EU as a economic block. Uh, it started right after World War II uh, under the theory that if countries are in economic alliance, they won't go to war with each other. So, Germany, France, and then UK and others started to join. And so, it's sort of been thought of along those lines. But going back at least 20 years, it also has had impact on policy beyond economics. For example, it's created what it calls directives, but essentially laws that members are obligated to around issues of gender equity, racial, discrimin uh, racial discrimination, uh, inclusion of people from uh, different religions in society. There's been a range of social policy issues uh, that the EU has had as well. And because it has the uh, power to uh, censor or sanction or even expel members, uh, it has a powerful leverage uh, in enforcing those uh, social policies. You know, that election for the, uh, the European Parliament, the European Union would be around June sometime. At least that's right. what it's scheduled for. Uh, I wanted to just to do a quick addendum also that um, we're kind of touching themes here. Authoritarianism, uh, the importance of information and voter participation. Uh, mentioned global warming, which I'm sure we'll mention again before we go. Uh, the issue of racism and whether societies will be truly multicultural. So these elections, I would hope, would cause us to pay attention in a more global, no pun intended, way of thinking of elections. It's not just what leader gets elected or what party wins, but there are matters at hand. For instance, in Ireland, with a June election, they have uh, two, I believe, what would be equivalent to constitutional uh, referendums affecting right. the definition of family life because a good portion of the population believes that uh, there are two principles that are rather archaic and unfair to women. That would be just an example of why elections are important. Um, we, listeners, let me remind you, you're listening to We the People. I'm your host, David Whetstone. But more importantly, our guest is Dr. Clarence Lussain, who's a professor of political science, um, an international expert with many duties and responsibilities. And we're talking about this supercharged year of 2024. It is the year of global elections. At least 64 countries plus the European Union will hold elections affecting about half of the world's population, about 4 billion people, folks. So hopefully WPFW and other media sources that you rely upon will tell you what's going on in the world as they should. Dr. Lucien, let's talk about what has happened. Um, I, I think that's important. There are at least two, two or three countries that I can think of. There was an election in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, in uh, Taiwan. Um, Lai Ching-do was elected uh, president, and that affects the Taiwan uh, People's Republic-China relationship. I mentioned Bangladesh. Uh, the Prime Minister uh, Hasina won a fourth term, and that has um, some significance. What might you um, tell us about these 
three countries or other countries that have recently um, had elections? Uh, yep. So there were uh, elections in the DRC. Uh, pay attention to the DRC uh, because I actually did election observing there uh, a number of years ago. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's been a uh, challenge uh, because there's war going on. And, uh, you know, it hasn't gotten a lot of coverage, uh, but in the Eastern uh, DRC, in Eastern Congo, uh, there's been a horrible war uh, that's been going on uh, for years. So, of course, it makes it uh, almost impossible in that part of the country uh, to try to focus on elections. Uh, but in the rest of the country, there uh, was elections, uh, and there were some observers, not as many as before, uh, or normally, normally because of some of the instability. Uh, but coming out of that, there were a lot of irregularities um, from having access to uh, voting to how the ballots were uh, insecure, uh, states of violence uh, that happened. Uh, and again, uh, did not, I think, get the kind of attention uh, that it should have gotten from, uh, from the West that would have mitigated uh, some of those uh, those problems. Uh, it's been my experience when uh, there's a lot of international uh, observers uh, in two countries, uh, it does have an impact. Uh, so, you know, going forward again, uh, this is something to pay attention to. Uh, the, the Carter Center, which has been kind of a leading uh, force globally, um, uh, has raised these issues again and again and again, uh, trying to make sure that uh, Western media, Western governments uh, pay attention to the countries that really are struggling around uh, democracy. Uh, what we saw in Taiwan uh, was someone uh, who's elected who did not make China happy. And so China has uh, kind of reinforced that it's still things that Taiwan belongs to it and that uh, it will someday uh, reunite Taiwan with the rest of China, uh, even if it has to do that by force. Uh, so some of this is bluster, of course, uh, but it also is very much shaped by the degree to which the rest of the world kind of pays attention and kind of puts up a, you know, a stop sign on, on some of this. Uh, but that was a really important election. Uh, you had mentioned earlier a number of different themes that have been emerging, uh, some which are um, kind of consistent around issues of democratization, around economic health uh, impacting elections. Two issues that have emerged uh, most recently uh, in the last number of years, uh, one you mentioned, climate change, uh, which really has a big impact on how people can think about the world and how that's going to impact everything. Uh, the other issue that's emerging that we still do not have, as we have hardly any information on, uh, is artificial intelligence and how that's going to be a factor uh, in elections going forward. Uh, we've already saw just a tiny, tiny bit here in the U.S. in last week when it appears that there was some AI-generated uh, calls um, imitating President Biden's voice, uh, encouraging people not to go vote. So that's going to be uh, totally forgotten uh, compared to what will probably be coming down the pike in terms of how uh, governments, political parties, political actors will make use of this technology uh, to try to influence uh, elections. So that's something that we really should pay attention to. Uh, and again, this is global, not just going to happen in the United States, but, you know, kind of everywhere. You know, how is this technology then going to impact uh, democratization and people's ability to really have fair and open and free elections? We're talking to Dr. Clarence Lusane. He's a professor of political science and the director of inter the International Affairs Program at Howard University. We're talking about 2024 being a supercharged year of global elections. You are listening to We the People. I'm your host, David Whetstone. And um, 
we want to thank listeners for their support of WPFW. I want to deliberately take time out even before our mid-show break to thank uh, the supporters who brought us through the end of the year. It really, really makes a difference. It has kept us around for over 46 years. And for that, I thank you. Uh, Dr. Lusain, again, let's keep on holding on to these themes, particularly uh, the issue of misinformation and uh, popular opinion. And um, being mindful of time, I just want to inform listeners, we'll move from region to region, and then we'll get back to the uh, larger questions at hand. Um, did you want to say anything about Bangladesh? Uh, yeah, so Bangladesh is, uh, again, it's a country that doesn't get a lot of attention in the West, uh, but it's really important because it's kind of a bellwether of politics kind of in that area. And so uh, there are elections that are coming up uh, or that were had, and those were uh, more or less democratic. I think that's that's generally how they have been seen. Uh, which is an advance, uh, you know. In the in the region, uh, Pakistan is having elections uh, that are coming up, and uh, in the Pakistan Pakistani election, uh, the main two leading candidates are former uh, presidents who are both charged with were charged with corruption. So, you know, that makes it a little kind of testy what that election is going to kind of turn out to be. Uh, but Bangladesh was, was a really important election that they actually even pulled it off. Uh, and so, you know, we see going forward uh, how stable uh, the country becomes or remains kind of after that. But That's, pay attention to Pakistan. And, and I think those elections are coming up uh, next month, actually. Yes, that's that's yeah. uh, entirely correct. Um, and since we're in that area of the world... Um, we might as well talk about Prime Minister Modi and what's going on in India. And um, uh, I believe those elections are, uh, they kind of straddle the end of April and the beginning of May. And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and for Pakistan, it's earlier. I believe it's around early February. Uh, yeah, yes, like, like February 8th or, 8th like or so. Yes. Right. But but getting back to India and, and and why that's important. So India, of course, is you know always called the largest democracy in the world uh, because it's you know humongous. Uh, and uh, President Modi has been in power now like a dozen years or so, I believe. Uh, yes, and he, he he stands to be the the longest serving prime minister if he wins the upcoming election. In the in the uh, history of the country, yeah, yeah, it's, been, it's I think it's been about ten years, uh, and you know he's he's he came to power uh, with a party that was uh, Hindu nationalist, uh, and has been increasingly hardline uh, on uh, religion uh, exclusion, and so for Christians and Muslims in the country. Uh, it's been challenging uh, because uh, there's been a lot of um, even violence uh, kind of against some of those communities. Uh, Modi has also cracked down on the press. He's cracked down on political opposition. Uh, and he's built strong ties uh, not only with sort of Western governments, but also uh, Russia and, and some other countries. Uh, so he's pretty seated in power and it's hard to see him him losing. The question will be whether the opposition, uh, the main one being the national, what's it called, Na Indian National Congress, uh, if they will be able to uh, make some gains uh, in this upcoming election. And you brought up the issues of media and and the internet and misinformation. They're very much at play in 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 the country of India. Yep. Yep. Very much. Very much. So we've only just begun, but we're halfway through our show. And uh, 
in service to our listeners, let's take a break for public service announcements. And I encourage you to stay with us. We'll be right back with Dr. Clarence Lusane talking about this year of global elections. About half of the world's population is affected. You most certainly want to get some sense of perspective and begin to have some understanding about this important year. We'll be right back after this. Won't you stay with us, please? The best in live music entertainment is coming to Bethesda Theater. Peebo Bryson, the legendary voice of love for two big shows on Friday, January 26th at 8.30 p.m. and Saturday, January 27th at 8 p.m. Celebrate legend Bob Marley at the annual One Love Birthday Bash featuring popular reggae band I&I Rhythm on Saturday, February 3rd at 8 p.m. Celebrate more love at the Quiet Storm Valentine Celebration featuring live performances of classic love songs on Saturday, February 10th at 8 p.m. Peebo Bryson on January 26th and 27th. Bob Marley, the birthday bash on February 3rd and Quiet Storm Valentine Celebration on February 10th. More info and tickets at BethesdaTheater.com. WPFW is a proud media partner with Bethesda Theater. And welcome back to We the People. I'm your host, David Whetstone, right here at WPFW 89.3 FM in HD and WPFWFM.org. Over 80 different programmers bring you jazz and justice, trying to build a better world one broadcast at a time, supported by you, the listener, almost in entirety. And for that, we thank you. I want to remind you that such programs as Africa Now, which is broadcast 1 p.m. Eastern on Wednesdays, is hosted by Moisa Mutali. There's a continuing focus on Malcolm X. I believe he's going to bring us um, presentations about uh, Malcolm X's influence on labor uh, throughout the diaspora. That's on Africa Now with host Moisa Mutali at 1 p.m. Uh, 2 p.m., Zen El Amin will bring you Concerns of Middle Eastern Affairs on Shewa Nana. And at three, Sophie's Parlor, the longest women's collective um, on being broadcast, will bring you music and aspects of culture by women before everyone. That's all here at WPFW. Dr. Lusane, thank you for being with us this morning. Um, we've covered regions pretty well. We might return to some countries in particular, but let's look to our neighbors south of the United States. Um, Mexico is coming up with an election, and then we'll we'll move further south into South America. So, uh, Mexican election is coming up in June, and uh, there'll be a new uh, president because uh, uh, AMLO, the uh, current president, AMLO is the initials of Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, Obrador. Uh, yes. who uh, who's not running. Uh, but what's one of the interesting features of the Mexican election is that the two leading candidates are women. Uh, and so it's very, very likely one of them will win uh, from AMLO's party, the Morena party. Uh, it's a woman named Claudia Scheinbaum. Uh, and the other candidate uh, represents kind of a coalition of the opposition, uh, and her name is Zochito uh, Galvez. Uh, maybe mispronounced her first name. Uh, but of course, this is going to be an important election because depending on who wins there and who wins in the U.S., uh, it could up in extend or uh, you know completely. Uh, uh, turn around uh, U.S.-Mexican relations. Uh, so we really have to pay attention to uh, how that election is uh, going to unfold. And there's, of course, a lot of issues from immigration to drug trafficking to uh, economic relations uh, that are all kind of embedded in, in these elections. Um, also in February, and I think it also straddles into March, El Salvador is... Conducting elections right. uh, later in May, Panama uh, also, and then um, 
coming up is Venezuela. Do you want to say any, make any remarks about those particular countries and the significance? Uh, so, uh, I mean, I think, you know, we, you know, need to pay attention, uh, El Salvador, uh, in particular, uh, has, uh, had, uh, people who watch the news know, has had, you know, serious, uh, issues of stability. Uh, and, you know, it's not clear that the election is going to actually resolve, uh, kind of any of that. Um. Venezuela, of course, is going to be important because, uh, you know, the U.S. has had a very antagonistic relationship uh, with Venezuela uh, going back to Hugo Chavez uh, and now under uh, President uh, Maduro. Uh, So uh, how that election is going to unfold, uh, there's still discussions going on in the country uh, about when it would even happen, uh, which would be somewhere in the latter half of the year. Um, and it's not even that clear, you know, who's going to be on the ballot uh, in terms of the opposition. Uh, but again, it will be, you know, an important election because it, you know, because of its relationship with the U.S. and whether or not the uh, antagonisms will continue or even kind of grow or if both the election in the U.S. and the election in Venezuela uh, creates new circumstances for uh, diplomatic relations. Um, let's see if we had further, even further south, uh, there have been some remarkable elections that have already occurred, thinking of Peru and Argentina. And um, coming up, I, I think there's an election in Uruguay as well. But uh, is there anything you want to say about uh, South American countries and what's been going on electorally? Uh, so, uh, kind of somewhat amazingly, uh, for those of us who were around in the you know eighties and nineties, you know, South, you know, Latin America got you know massive attention, uh, and then it just kind of dropped off the map. Uh, and so, many of those countries, without sort of U.S. Kind of over uh, over attention, uh, move towards more democracy. Uh, we saw everywhere from Chile uh, to Argentina to Bolivia, a number of different countries uh, that uh, I would argue became more um, democratic. Uh, but we've also seen uh, some erosion. Uh, one of the projects you mentioned earlier that I work with called Varieties of Democracy, uh, and there are others, uh, spend a lot of time assessing democratization uh, and democratization. And what uh, what we've seen kind of globally uh, is there's certainly been uh, democratic erosion uh, in particularly countries like the U.S., for example, uh, but also some of the countries uh, in the global south and in, in, in Latin America. Uh, but it's a dynamic and it can kind of go up and down. And so uh, I would say Latin America overall, particularly South America, uh, is in a much better place on these issues than it was, you know, 20 years ago. But there's still, you know, some dynamics to, to uh, be watchful for. Um, I like to say so you can calibrate and correct when we look at south american countries there's a lot of commentary about whether it's a testing of the left or the right whether it's a testing of whether social contracts uh, a more humane sense of policy as far as really helping people and lifting them out of policies at play and then when we think about um um Argentina, we have the whole thing again about information, disinformation, pers- personality, and and uh, and good and bad cases. A sense of nationalism with uh, is it Millet? I, I'm not Millet. sure if I'm pr- yeah. pronouncing his name yeah. right. Javier Millet, um, who is likened to be a Trump-like figure, right? Oh, let's uh, throw a question out of that, so I'm not just commentating. It's 
is that is there really a demonstration of left and right ideology? I I personally don't like that dichotomy, but well, I think it's you know a lot of attention has been given to what's more referred to as popularism, yeah, uh, where it's less kind of ideologically clear, uh, but more focused on uh, basically trying to address and um, animate the passions of people. Uh, often that means uh, identifying uh, the enemy and mobilizing people around or against uh, immigrants or different religious groups uh, and such. So it isn't as much ideological that is framed by, you know, a capitalist or a socialist sort of agenda uh, as much as around, you know, what becomes the ability to mobilize people to uh, stay in power. Uh, now, invariably, uh, it's very corporatist uh, or, uh, oriented. And so what comes out of these uh, kind of populist uprisings is uh, also more kind of corporate control uh, over the politics. So in, in uh, with Mele coming to power, uh, that was clearly the agenda uh, that he would, to the degree there was any agenda, uh, uh, what he was uh, talking about. And so that's, again, a global phenomena uh, that we've seen around the world. So uh, I, I feel the clock running us down here. Um, I'm going to make some leaps here across oceans. Um, we talked about Africa earlier, and uh, I wanted to mention the region of the uh, Sahel and why that's important. People who are not familiar with that term would under best understand it as uh the band of countries from the west coast of Africa to the east coast in the northern part of Africa that is below the Sahara and um, ab yeah. above the remaining part of the continent. Why is the Sahel very, very important? Um, if, as you talk, people will understand that some of these countries have experienced coups of different sorts for different reasons. Yeah, so there have been coups, and then there's been, uh, even where there hasn't been coups, there's been instability. So this week I was actually supposed to be in Senegal uh, for uh, for a conference, uh, but the conference has been pushed back uh, because there were uh, some worries about the stability for the elections that are coming up uh, this week. Uh, this That region is really critical because it's basically kind of the bridge between uh, Sub-Saharan Africa and uh, Europe, uh, from Western to, to Eastern Europe. Uh, and so, uh, and, and you've got the uh, seas and the oceans uh, in the Mediterranean uh, uh, in, those, in those areas. Uh, so it's really important in terms of the global economy, everything from shipping to, uh, you know, other kinds of trade that goes on to how people move uh, from uh, different parts of the global south to parts of the global north. Uh, so elections in that region uh, or instability in that region uh, really uh, do have a, a significant impact. Uh, but there are elections all over uh, Africa. We already mentioned South Africa, uh, but in Mauritania, in Rwanda, uh, which is really important because uh, Kagame has been in power basically for 30 years now. It's been it's been like forever. Um, and so that has, you know, evolved into a problem. Uh, Mozambique is having elections. Ghana is having elections. Chad uh, is having elections. Uh, also up in the north, Tunisia uh, is having elections. Uh, so all over uh, the, the continent, but particularly in the northern part of the country, Algeria, for example, uh, there are elections that uh, will be happening. And as you noted, uh, last year, uh, there were a number of coups, uh, attempted coups uh, in countries, primarily in kind of north, northwestern part of, uh, of Africa. Uh, so there's a, you know, a lot of dynamics uh, that are kind of unfolding. Uh, the African Union 
uh, has paid a lot of attention uh, and it has been uh, um, uh, very concerned about getting uh, people out to these elections to uh, observe and support uh, democratization, but its resources are pretty limited. Uh, so, and because this year there's so many elections, uh, I'm not uh, too confident about how much they're going to be able to really uh, play the role that they played on the last uh, decade or so. Uh, so it will be important that other uh, non-African uh, uh, entities will be able to uh, play a role in terms of uh, electing observing and supporting democracy uh, in the region. Well, one failure on that account is, of course, South Sudan, which, because of the conflict, yeah. its elections are delayed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, we're we're leaping in the interest of time. Uh, listeners, forgive me. Um, I, I think I'd like to return back to Asia. And okay. um, I, I know that uh, Indonesia's um, having an upcoming election. I believe it's around um, the general elections as their earliest next month. And uh, it's, yeah, I think so. I to, yeah. So. And it's the exactly. world's fourth most populous country. Yep, and, largest uh, Muslim we, country it, in the world. Yes, and we don't, we really don't pay attention to it, and it's people. Right. Uh, yeah. So yeah, we got to pay attention to uh, what's going to happen uh, in Indonesia. Um, it's. I was trying to get some information on kind of what outside observing was going to happen, but I haven't been able to find much. Uh, so, you know, that's something to kind of look into. Uh, but that's going to be really one of the key uh, countries. Uh, and then, you know, I think which, they're going to what's be your, What understanding would you have us think about when we think about Indonesia? Uh, so, so Indonesia sort of sits in a very um, peculiar global position. So it has, I think, a very outside impact on the Muslim world, uh, which kind of doesn't get as much attention as, you know, Iraq or somewhere. Um, but Indonesia is really, really kind of critical. And so its stability uh, is important. And historically, you know, it has had a horrific uh, uh, oppressive uh, national government. Uh, and, you know, there have been massacres. It's been, you know, kind of a horrible history in, in many kind of ways. Uh, but it's become, you know, a little more, you know, I'm not sure how people would completely call it demo dem democratic, uh, but it certainly, has, uh, you know, been better uh, than in the past. Uh, but that's because there's been, you know, lots of outside pressure, uh, and then that needs to kind of remain. And so, uh, you know, we'll see how that kind of unfolds. Uh, but I mentioned, you know, there are going to be some places where because of the instability, elections will not happen. Um, in Ukraine, for example, where, uh, you know, the war is going on, uh, this was supposed to be an election year. Uh, and uh President Zelensky is basically said we can't do it. Uh, it just is not possible when the entire country is under uh, under attack. Uh, so we see, you know, those kinds of uh, circumstances that countries are facing uh, uh, this year. And uh, we've got about four or five minutes to go, and I wanted to return to larger questions. Um, and in doing research about global elections, it's clear to me that established orders are concerned about security, i.e. their own, as opposed to what might be viewed as more beneficial to the rest of humanity. So there's talks of stability and stability. And even uh, among Western nations, our elections here are viewed as quite seriously as a potential threat. We talked about uh, 
the lack of support of global warming or the lack of trying to unify or work cooperatively with nations of the world. What is the larger picture? Um, you know, we just finished talking about Indonesia. You contrast uh, the authoritarian and brutal rule with uh, even in a majority Muslim country, people on the ground have always tried to embrace a unity that includes others, others different than themselves. That is not the characteristic that is going on, in, in, at least in the Western world, if not the two-thirds world, at least in this country, if not elsewhere. What's the bigger frame that you might want us to think about in terms of really, really paying attention that half of the world's population, one way or another, is going to have a process that will give them new leadership and possibly new political processes. So you're, so you're basically kind of hitting at, uh, you know, what I what I think is really critical is that uh, we often say elections matter, and that's generally seen in a domestic context, but it matters globally, and so uh, there's kind of sides on this. One is that whatever is going to happen in the rest of the world in these elections we've talked about in Europe and Africa and Latin America and Asia are going to have an immense impact on what happens in the U.S. It's the context of everything from uh, climate to economics to to democratization. Uh, The other side of it is what happens in the U.S., will affect the rest of the world. So when we elect someone in this country to become president, and for that matter, uh, the Congress, uh, that's going to have a global impact. I spent a lot of time in Europe, and I'm always bombarded with what's going to happen in the U.S. People are very, very concerned um, about, you know, what our elections are going to be. And if uh, someone like Donald Trump and the MAGA movement will be back in power, uh, and that will not only have an impact here, but will give succor to uh, authoritarians and anti-democracy forces around the world. And so, again, you know, we have to see, you know, all politics is global as well as local. Uh, Clarence, Dr. Lusain, um, can I leave you with this and we may even have a smidget of time for you to respond, but I was thinking about something W.E.B. Du Bois said in, in a work called The World in Africa. He was mm-hmm. talking about the nature of human freedom, human dignity, human flourishing. And this is not the full quote, but um, I will just pick up from um, the, a concluding paragraph. Each effort to stop this freedom of being is a blow to democracy. The real democracy, which is reservoir and opportunity, there can be no perfect democracy curtailed by color, race, or poverty. But with all, we accomplish all, even peace. Yeah, that says it. I mean, of course, you know, Du Bois is, as always, you know, straight to the point. Uh, that it really is uh, a globally connected, globally uh, impacted uh, world. And we have to be responsible with it. And it begins with awareness, does it not, sir? It absolutely does. Well, thank you again, Dr. Clarence Hussein, Professor of Political Science and Director of International Affairs Program at Howard University. Thank you, listeners, for sticking with us with this hour of We the People. And I want to thank Mike Nacella, our engineer, the News and Public Affairs Department of WPFW. Coming up next is Clarence the Blues Man Turner, bringing you the blues on the noon hour. He is in control of the Wednesday edition. Thank you, Clarence. And thank you. Um, yeah, I get to thank two Clarences at once. <laughs> All right. And uh, folks, again, uh, I thank you for your support of WPFW. Coming up next, I believe Sue Goodwin will bring you the news five minutes before the hour from this point forward. Be safe, take good care, and perhaps we'll meet again on the radio. Take care.
WPFW News in Washington and WBAI in New York, I'm Sue Goodwin. Here are some headlines. Former President Donald Trump won New Hampshire's first-in-the-nation presidential primary yesterday, beating former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. At an election night party, Haley congratulated Trump on his victory, but insisted she did not intend to drop out of the race as she prepares for a primary in her home state of South Carolina next month. Trump's victory wasn't nearly as sweeping as his Iowa win last week, but it was never expected to be in a state with an electorate packed with moderate Republicans and independents. On the Democratic side, President Joe Biden won the primary as a write-in candidate. Biden didn't appear on the primary ballot following an internal party dispute over the primary date. In other news, testimony in E. Jean Carroll's defamation trial against Donald Trump was postponed for the second day in a row, according to a notice posted to the court docket. The trial will now resume tomorrow. On Monday, U.S. District Judge Lewis Kaplan delayed the trial until today after a juror called in sick. The court did not offer a reason for the additional delay. When the trial resumes, jurors will determine how much Trump should pay Carol for defaming her when he denied raping her in a Bergdorf Goodman department store dressing room in Manhattan. Trump was already found liable last year for sexually abusing Carol and defaming her after he left the White House in a separate civil trial and was hit with a $5 million verdict, which he is appealing. The current trial focuses on what Trump said while he was president as well, and what amount of damages should be awarded to Carroll for those statements. In more legal news, the D.C. Court of Appeals in Washington rejected former President Donald Trump's request to lift a gag order, restricting his speech in the case charging him with plotting to overturn the 2020 election. The gag order imposed by U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin in October barred him from making statements that target witnesses, prosecutors, or court staff. A three-judge panel of the appeals court in December upheld the order but narrowed its scope to only prevent Trump from discussing, quote, known or reasonably foreseeable witnesses concerning their potential participation in the investigation or in this criminal proceeding, close quote. In light of the full court's refusal to rehear the matter, Trump's legal team has the option to appeal to the Supreme Court, a course of action they have indicated they may pursue. And Fighting has intensified around the city of Khan Yunus in southern Gaza, where aid groups warned that thousands of civilians were trapped in hospitals or struggling to flee the area. Israel has issued new evacuation orders to over half a million Palestinians in Khan Yunus, where many had sought refuge from Israel's attack in the northern Gaza Strip. On Tuesday, at least six Palestinians died when a missile hit one of the UN's largest shelters in Khan Yunus. Meanwhile, an Israeli government spokesperson ruled out a Gaza ceasefire today, despite reports that negotiations on hostage releases were progressing, and repeated international calls for Israel to cease its bombardment 
of the Gaza Strip. At least 25,700 Palestinians have been killed and over 63,000 injured in Israeli strikes on Gaza since October 